Um, please help me welcome U of A Assistant Professor Roberto Rodriguez, who will be giving a brief introduction on ethnic studies in general. Kuali Yowali, le bueno toca Dr. Sintli. We like to say if we were uh, going by the rules that have been enacted, I would, it would have been illegal for me to say what I just told you. And I just said good afternoon. Um, and my name is, uh, and I go by Dr. Sintli. Um, I'm not actually going to talk to you about controversies, maybe if I have time. I'm going to talk to you about what is taught in MAS. And this is nationwide, but also across the street. And what I wanted to talk briefly on was that there's three concepts. One is called In La Quesh, Pancheve, and Unapku. In La Quesh, I learned, I learned it a generation ago or longer. And it's very simple. Uh, and it's very similar to other philosophies throughout the world. But in, in La Quesh, and I'll tell you how I learned it. I'll read it in fact. It says, In la quesh, tu eres mi otro yo. You are my other self. I am you and you are me. If I hurt you, I hurt myself. If I hate you, I hate myself. If I love and respect you, I love and respect myself. Now, in uh, MAS, they teach a variation of that. Um, that's the way I learned it. And uh, I think it's baffling. Um, that people seem to object to something like that. Like I said, I'll get to the debate perhaps later, but I wanted to present that in La Quesh. It's literally teaches us to see ourselves in each other, you know, not like me first or my people first, but rather doesn't matter if the person's African-American or Asian, whatever, we see ourselves in each other. We love ourselves because why would you want to hate yourself? Okay, so that's in La Quesh. It's part of uh, what uh, some people call Mesoamerica. Uh, there's a professor, uh, a Maya scholar by the name of Domingo Martinez Paredes who would refer to that as Maya Nahua culture, many, many thousands of years. I simply refer to it as part of Maiz culture. Uh, and incidentally, Maiz culture is at least 7,000 years on this continent, about at least 6,000 years uh, in what is today called the U.S. Southwest, in Bat Cave, New Mexico, maíz was found, you know, again, close to 6,000 years ago. Right here on Ina and Silver Bell is considered the oldest cornfield in this country, for at least 4,000 years old. So when we talk about maíz culture, we're not talking about alien culture, it is from here. The second concept is uh, Pancheve. And Pancheve has several meanings and I'll limit it to English, but Pancheve is to seek the root of the truth. In rereading it, I also give it another definition, is to seek the truth in the roots. That is, if you ever want to find the truth, go to the roots. And I've been a journalist my entire life. And for me, uh, I think we can take another concept from hip hop. It's called uh, don't believe the hype. Now, in an academic setting, that would translate to critical thinking. Pancheve. I told you there's several meanings. The next meaning is the pursuit of social justice. In other words, it's not enough to simply find the truth, but if there's something wrong, 
then it's our responsibility to fix it. Now, we don't tell the students to fix it on their own. You know, they come to do that, just like they've defended their own program. Nobody's ever told them they have to go to a rally, etc. And normally, as, as uh, alluded to, normally this is connected with everything that's around us. But today, I'm limiting that three-hour discussion to like, you know, 10 minutes. Uh, so again, Panchebe, Inlakesh, Panchebe, and the third uh, element is Unapku. Unapku is something very simple. Um, all peoples, cultures, religions, everybody has a similar concept. Unapku, uh, again, Domingo, Domingo Martinez Perez would translate to movement and measure. Now, if you read the literature, that would also translate to supreme being, architect of the universe. But when we have translation issues, people misconstrue. The peoples of this continent did not have deities in the sense that in the Western uh, realm. But I say, I mention these three concepts because all, the, all these three combine to what it means to be ser humano or what it, makes, what it means to be human or becoming human. Um, unfortunately, as you probably know, when Europeans first got here to this continent, they considered all the knowledge here as either pagan, godless, or demonic. I maintain we're still living with that to this day, not yesterday, but even to this day. The MAS program teaches for other, another concept called the Fortes Catlipocas. I don't have time for that, uh, but uh, that's also critical and it's part of the curriculum. The part I did want to also mention is the, uh, um, well, before I go to that other concept is that this, uh, the way to explain the three concepts, the Maya explained with a concept called M-E-N, men, but it's not what it sounds like. What it actually is, at least my translation, is a combination of walking in beauty, which is a Dene concept, mostly associated with women, and the way of the warrior. You combine those two concepts, and that's in Lakesh, Pancheve, and Unapku, Ser Humano, being or becoming human. The 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 um, the four Tezcatlipocas, you know, that's about transformation. And like I said, I, I really there's not much time to talk about that. The last two things that I wanted to mention was uh, creation and creation stories. As I mentioned, when people got here, they assumed that everybody was demonic, praying to the devil and all that. Well, here on this continent, there's two very well-known stories. Now, most of our students don't know about them, but one of them comes from the Popol Vuh. And in the Popol Vuh, it talks about how humans were created in a place called Tamuanchan. And in this place, the humans are created out of mud, out of a series of things, and finally out of maize. And it takes place again in Tamuanchan. There's also, that's the Maya version. In the Nahuatl version, this, the people are also created in Tamuanchan. You know, Quetzalcoatl uh, and Quetzalcoatl create human beings, but they can't move. And so what happens is Quetzalcoatl is sent out to find food for the people. And what, what happens is he stumbles upon an ant and uh, the ants refuse Quetzalcoatl, the, the, the maize, but finally they, they, they do give, give in and give it to Quetzalcoatl. 
anyway, those are two very basic ideas, two creation stories. And when you look at humanity, all humanity has creation stories. Everybody has myth, narrative, and all that. But what we've seen in this debate is that apparently only one story counts, only one narrative counts. Either that, or what you do is you water it down so that apparently it matches the other narratives perhaps. What I want to say about these concepts is that they are not simply ideas, they're ethos. They're, those are things that we live by. You know, I can see in front of me students that I've known for several years who have incorporated these ideas, you know, they live by them, we live by them. So it isn't just something that we just uh, twiddle our thumbs and think about. Pancheve, in my opinion, is probably the most critical. And that's that search for the truth and that search for social justice. You know, how can that be wrong? You know, personally, I don't understand how, why anyone would take offense to that point of view. You know, again, it's about being human, becoming human, seeing ourselves in each other. What is wrong with that? I think you might hear later what people think is wrong with that. Again, our culture that we're talking about that's supposed to be banned, absolutely, it does not come from Western civilization. It does not come from the Greeks and the Romans. But why is that disqualified from being taught here? Because when Mr. Horn first proposed this, that's what he said, that what is taught across the street is against uh, uh, Western civilization, that it does not come from Greco-Roman culture. And we didn't debate him on that because he is correct about that. I, what I told you about a second ago, in Lakesh, Panchebe, Unapku, those creation stories, they're right here from this continent, thousands of years. Our children and all children deserve to know that, learn it, understand it, just like we should know about the, the creation stories of Africa, of Asia, of India. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all a good thing. Now, I don't know if I've went, gone over, but it probably doesn't matter. Uh, the point is, that's the point. Uh, five more minutes? Wow. I should probably read you the whole book. Well, then I told you I wasn't going to talk about the, the, the controversy, so since I have time, I will talk about it. Because it was more important initially to talk about what it is that we teach, you know? Now, what we teach, you know, I think it's an incredible honor. I've been associated with this program since its inception through the books that I've written, through the columns. But what I have found, and I, and I learned this through the Libro Traficante, that caravan that came throughout the country and brought us books. You know what I told them? I said, we don't need books here, and you don't need to be coming to our community. What you need to be doing is dropping off seeds. Everywhere you go, leave seeds, because Tucson is, was the one exception, literally, in this country, where kids, I'm talking about kindergarten, even pre-kindergarten, they were learning in La Quiche and Pancheve. Now, who in Houston or Dallas or Chicago or New York is learning about In La Quiche and Pancheve? You know what? The truth is, the kids are learning about that now because they've heard about this and they've heard about this controversy. And out of the blue, people want to know. And I think, if anything, that is the duty of people. You know, if they support this, it isn't about what's across the street, it's about literally this, this continent and our role in it. Latino I always tell people, this is not a, an attack on, on Mexican or Chicano or even indigenous studies. Tuning this is an into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor.
Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. This is Tony Diaz, a Libre Traficante, and you're tuning into a multi-platform broadcast in tribute to the late Dr. Sintley, also known as Roberto Rodriguez, a dear friend of so many of us. And we're joining our entire community in Luto, uh, mourning his passing, but celebrating his legacy of work and conveying our condolences to the whole familia. So we wanted to make sure that this was going to be a broadcast for our radio show. So we will broadcast this on 90.1 FM KPFT, Houston's community station, on free radio because Roberto was all about reaching the people with his wisdom, his wit, his intelligence, and we want to keep that going. I do want to say on behalf of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, in the Latino bookstore and the Libro Traficantes, we give our condolences to his familia that knew him through blood, through his whole life, to his familia that met him in the course of his work. And I personally, um, I'm, I'm so blessed to have been able to have known him, worked with him. Um, we hosted him several times. He's part of the life of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. He was one of the first nationally published authors that Nuestra Palabra hosted back when we convened in the party hall of Chapultepec restaurant. Uh, and I have to smile when I say that because it's a beautiful memory. Shout out to uh, Russell Contreras, who I believe was in college at the time. And he was excited about bringing Dr. Sintley to, to our event. I remember Tacho Mendiola was the director of Center for Mexican Art Studies at the University of Houston. And he brought maps showing us where Atslan was believed to be versus where others had said it was and always rejuvenating our history, our culture, always making us proud to be Chicanos, Chicanas. And I do want to get to our guests, but I do want to mention that we're happy to join this legacy where he returned to Houston to be part of the, the Latino Book and Family Festival. We also had the pleasure of interviewing him on our radio shows and broadcasts. We also hosted him at Casa Ramirez. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then, of course, I'm proud to serve as the literary curator for the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. And I'm so glad that we formed part of his legacy by teaming up with Atzalan Libre Press, and we'll talk to Juan in a little bit. And we all teamed up for the national launch of his, what would come to be his last book, and we'll talk about that as well. Um, the last thing I'll say, I, I, I'm blessed. We would talk by phone, shoot the breeze. We smuggled his books across the Southwest because he was part of the outlawed curriculum in the Mexican-American Studies program and that brilliant curriculum that should have been extolled instead of banned by right-wing legislators in Arizona. He was on that list. He was visiting the schools. I suspect if someone needs a project, they still have some of his books and warehouses there in Tucson. We may have to look into that. And finally, I was 
talking to him online and he invited me to be part of this new series of events he did there in the homeland at Teotihuacan. And that meant so much to me, especially as on the cover of my book, The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital, I'm sitting on Teotihuacan. And he reached out to me right away to say, let's work together. Um, I, I don't want to take too much time, um, but I, I do want you to know how much we're hurting, but at the same time, how much we loved him, how much he changed our lives and how much he gave back. And we have just a few friends who, who, who can who want to talk a little bit more about that. There's so many others that we won't be able to speak. I'm so happy that we could be joined by our dear friend, Matt Cedillo. Un abrazo grande, brother. Thank you for joining us, especially on short notice. And then also uh, Juan Tejeda, who um, is, is also uh, representing uh, Anissa Anofore, who is also the co-founders of Asan Libre Press, who published the last book. Juan, thank you so much for, for joining us. And we'll also have Rodrigo Bravo, who is our sound engineer, who will talk also about the impact of Roberto's work on him. Juan, let's start with you. There have been a lot of different tributes, but I am so... Thank you for putting time and energy, capital, love, blood, sweat, and tears into publishing what would be the final book of Dr. Sintley. Well, thank you, Tony. I'm, I'm glad to be here on behalf of my, my wife, Anissa Nofre, and Aslan Libre Press. Uh, this is uh, what ended up being uh, Sintley's last book that he published before he uh, passed away on July 31st, which is just a couple of weeks ago. This was writing 50 years, Mas o Menos Amongst the Gringos. It's, it's an almost 50 year curated compilation of his uh, work um, that includes uh, 91 columns, poems, articles that, that he did in journalistic writings uh, some academic work, some things that had never been published before, excerpts from his previous seven books. Um, so we included these 91 articles uh, uh, from uh, 36 different publications that he had originally published them in um, from the 1970s all the way to through 2010. So we're, we're very proud of this book. Um, it won the 2022 International Latino Book Award in the Raul Izaguirre uh, Best Political Slash Current Affairs Book category uh, last year. So the gold medal in, in, in that category. Um, it's uh, designed for Mexican-American, Chicano, and ethnic studies classes for college, university students, and even high school students in um, Chicano history, Chicano studies, Mexican-American studies, uh, and, and journalism communications courses. So at the end of each uh, decade, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, we had three educators, uh, Lupe Carrasco Cardona and Jenny Luna from California and Dr. Liliana Patricia Saldana from UTSA here in San Antonio uh, that, uh, that uh, worked up questions for discussion, writing prompts, um, and activities for students and teachers. So um, I think it's an important document. And I, I had mentioned before 
that I, I think that it was Dr. Sinzi's book, this book that we published, that solidified in my mind the importance of our publications and all publications for La Raza, and I think primarily with independent presses, but, but also other university-based presses and, and even the majors, the, the importance of our publications as our modern-day codices. These are the things that we are leaving behind for our children and all future generations for them to, to learn from. So we're very proud of this publication. I also want to add that speaking of the importance of the codices, speaking of the importance of this work, um, I also want to let people know that the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in San Antonio will continue to have his book in stock so that others can continue to read his work and pass it on and perhaps donate copies to schools, to colleges, to universities, and remembering that his these words were banned by the state of Arizona, we should remember to continue to build our family libraries, our public libraries, and our underground libraries. And, and you've done a lot of that. I do want, we're going to come back and talk about the book a little more. Um, and thank you for all that you're doing at San Libre Press. I do want to Give a shout out to our friend Matt Sedia representing Califas. You've done some tributes for him. Shout out to uh, Gustavo Arellano, also speaking of California, that wrote a piece for him in the LA Times. Uh, there's been others as well. Uh, Matt, you did a tribute for him as well. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about his impact on on uh, on you? Yeah, well, um, thank you for having me, Tony, and thank you for doing this. Um, Actually, uh, you know, in addition to to um, it's, it's, there's so many different you know like strands uh, the timing to, uh, to 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 Roberto, um, I um, I reviewed his book Yoki uh, uh, for Public Intellectuals, and uh, and he actually reviewed Mowing Leaves of Grass as well for the same publication. So I had this original idea that we'd have one article and it'd be um, like a joint review of each other's books, but uh, they ended up splitting them up. But um, yeah, no, I mean it was incredible. I mean. I'd known him, but to actually read the book and see, to see that it was, it was such a, it was such a incredible, you know, honor that he wanted me to do that. But it was also such an incredible read. I mean, to see, um, you know, the, all this history um, of our people um, really come to life. I mean, obviously every time you're, you're kind of confronted with that, it's, 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 it's really uh, quite an enriching and enraging um, and just a really just, fulfilling experience, but to see him just as a writer, the way that he would play with time and the way he would play with major events. So one moment you would be like in Whittier Boulevard, the next minute it's, it's, you know, Cortez uh, is showing up in Tenochtitlan. Another minute it's, it's, it's way before that. It's like the dawn of corn. It's like the beginning of time. It's the beginning uh, of our people that he didn't really, he never, he would never ever um, teach a history that, that began with the conquest. It was always, you know, the time before that it's returned to the corn. I mean, his name was Saintly, so there was so there was so much about him um, that was that was incredible. But one of the most incredible things, just as a writer, what was was how he played 
with time. You know, people talk about these days about, you know, creating, you know, futurism and they, 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 they you know, put like, you know, Afrofuturism or even Chicano futurism, they'll, they'll put like a hyphenated kind of futurism about it. But, but he played with time in a different kind of way where it was, it was the past, the present and the future all at once. And in many ways, it wasn't like this new trend. It was, it was, it was a way of that, that, that we had perceived time before, you know, colonization, before, um, before the, the imposition of, of this way of looking at the world. And so I think that he really tapped into that. And I think that he was really a great, you know, he really great expressed, he expressed that greatly, but he wasn't just like some type of spiritual guru or some type of guy that was just, just about returning to the corn. He was very much had his feet in the real world. He would talk about, you know, police shootings. He would talk about um, our education system. He would talk about all these things where we were being under either underrepresented or things were underfunded or we were being um, overly policed, whatever it might be, uh, these really tangible day-to-day -day issues, but he would also put them against the backdrop of big, big history and about, you know, uh, of who we are as a people and what is denied to us. So he was, he was an incredible, incredible author and incredible, you know, just incredible member of the community. And, uh, and, and I feel his loss very greatly, but I'm very honored um, that there was so many th different things to tie to him, whether it be through Are, and we were talking about earlier about Lupe, um, and then uh, you know her. They were, they were coordinating a trip for Are to go down to Teotihuacan to, to the to the embassy. Um, I was also tied to him through his projects for with uh, the police report uh, with the, the the police murders that he was reporting on. Mm. It was an artistic project headed by uh, Aslan Underground that I was a part of that album. Um, uh, me and him and like, I guess Armando Duran. We were we were kind of I had kind of gotten. They were already they had a project where they were going to take Armando's art collection or to, to, to Teotihuacan. And, uh, and so I kind of got involved in the conversation about how to extend that to some, some of my contacts in Mexico City. Um, and so, you know, I was, I, was, I was tied to him in a million ways. It just shows mm -hmm. just how active he really was, you know, um, because everywhere I turned, there was Saintly. Everywhere I turned, there was the corn. So he was a great, great man. Thank, thank you for sharing that and putting into perspective what a high bar he set for activism and also the academic field so that he shattered that that ivory tower and 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 created all these bridges and and we'll get back to to more of that um rodrigo you know matt mentioned uh, the book yoki uh we did host um dr simply at casa ramirez here in houston about that book too. Uh, and you mentioned it touched you as well. If you'd be kind of to share some of that. I mean, Matt said it perfectly, you know, it's like a spiritual awakening to hear something so profound, so deep, and it just touches you. When, when I read that book and I have been a fan of Dr. Sinley's work before, but when, when he wrote Yolki to me, it just spoke to me about finding those roots and being connected. Uh, and it was really beautiful because even this past weekend, uh, Tony, you featured Octavio Quintanilla and Jennifer Alanis here in San Antonio for their reading. And Jen mentioned how she had to, at one point, really look back and, and, and summon that female warrior, that spirit of the Mayan princess. And it really just kind of brought it full circle. And I said, oh, my God, that's what Dr. Sintley was talking about. That if we don't know our, our roots, that we don't go back to them, that we're going to be lost. 
mm-hmm. that we, we've already lost so much, right? And in Yolki, when I, I when I read that book, it really touched my heart because Dr. Sintley really spoke on so many people. And, and here's the beauty of it. It doesn't just pertain to Chicano, Chicanex, Chicanismo. You know, it, it does. It's a heavy part of it. But it really pertains to all marginalized people as to mm-hmm. the spiritual mm-hmm. violence that they have felt, that they have that we constantly have to endure. If you don't mind, I, I just want to read a quick quote from that book. Mm-hmm from Dr. Sintley's book, Yolki, and he's talking about spiritual violence. And he says, I am saying that people of color suffer from something much more profound, spiritual violence. It is repressive and it is totalizing. I would even venture to say that people of color have been subjected to what can aptly be called spiritual and cultural genocide. Yet spiritual death, even mass spiritual death, is not the worst thing that can happen to a people. To have our spirits battered daily, especially when such battering is directed by the state and all its institutions, is a worse violation because it is to die a daily death. And with everything that's gone on, Tony, and how we keep continually see marginalized folks, you know, beaten down, uh, taking our history away. Yes, maybe kids don't get beat up for speaking Spanish at school. Great. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. But guess what? They're taking away our books, okay? Mm-hmm. They're they're making they're preventing us from learning our own history. They're actually banning books again, and so that's why Dr. Sitley's work, the work that Matt Cedillo is doing, the work that Aslan Liberty Press is doing with Juan, there, everybody, we're all inspired by Dr. Sitley because he fought that fight and he made sure that people knew, hey, you know what? We're here. We're gonna make our histories known, and we're gonna let people know what it's all about. And I think you're also touching on his wisdom. He was very proud to be Chicano, but at the same time, he didn't let identity terms separate others who were not from our backgrounds to, to feel like they weren't part of this universal struggle. So that's a great point. You know what, Rodrigo, I, I want to thank you too for, I want to thank you and Roxana for always producing our shows with so much uh, genius. You were so both generous, so generous with your genius. Do me a favor. You want to tell folks, how you designed today's show so that they can know what's coming up next, but they can also know that, um, you know, you, you wanted to, to make a statement about his, his work with this show. Yeah. I think it's really important that we honor uh, all of our folks when they're here and they're doing the work and obviously honor them when, when, you know, uh, when, when they go to the other side, if you will, you know, it's, it's difficult, but we have to be reminded of what the legacy means, what honoring means. And so we did have Dr. Sidley on the show several times. Uh, his last uh, his last interview was when you were opening, introducing the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center Latino Bookstore. And he was one of the authors there. And Juan Tejeda published uh, with Asla Labor Press, published his last book. And it just seems fitting. You know, I mean, I hate to say it that way. I don't mean to sound, you know, no. the, without tact. But it just seems fitting that our last interaction with Dr. Sidley here was him still fighting, luchando, to make sure that the West Side of San Antonio had a renowned author come through, talk about the book, and have a repository, the Latino bookstore there. So we will be featuring his interview, that he, uh, the last interview that he had with you, 
talking about his book and talking about the impact of the Latino bookstore. And I'd like to touch bases for, for two minutes to, to part and, and reflect on legacy with Juan and Matt, and we'll start with Juan. But um, uh, Juan, think about that legacy. Here we are talking about 50 years of writing. Here we're talking about a San Libre Press. Here we're talking about a Latino bookstore, one of the only ones in, in Texas, on the poorest zip code in Texas, on the west side of San Antonio, a national launch for a wonderful event. Oh, yeah, me toca el corazón recordando ese momento. Fue lindísimo. That was beautiful. That's what this is all about. And I just want to say that because, uh, Rodrigo, you're not, you're not being tactless. I think we need to understand everything that all of us are doing and just lean in more. Uh, Juan, you want to close us out with a little about the legacy of Dr. Sintley and, and, and your work and the connections? Well, Dr. Sintley uh, was so prolific you know, over 50 years of writing since the 1970s when he was at UCLA as a student. And he began writing as a journalist, as a college student, working with La Gente de Aslan newspaper. And in fact, writing about uh, Chicano studies, writing about the different issues and problems that existed in our community, um, the, the sexism, uh, amongst our razas, I, I remember we include that article in here where we wrote an editorial uh, in support of uh, Dr. Ana Nieto Gomez, who is losing her tenured position there in California at one of the universities. Uh, but over the span of 50 years, uh, I mentioned earlier that he said he had over 2,000 articles and pieces of writings that uh, he narrowed down to, to, to this curated collection that we put out in 2021 but he wrote about violence. You know, he was almost killed in 1979 there in East Los Angeles, East LA, uh, when he was covering for Lowrider magazine, mm -hmm. uh, the opening of Boulevard Nights, that movie. And he photographed uh, some uh, deputy sheriffs there in, in East LA beating up uh, a young Chicanito. And they saw him photographing this and they went after him. And they, they, you know, he threw his camera away trying to preserve it to a friend, but they ended up beating him. He almost ended up dying. So throughout his life, he was very involved in, in, um, in trying to bring to light uh, the, the tremendous police brutality and police and state violence that we as indigenous Mexican Chicano people have had to endure, just like the African-Americans, right? Although sometimes the indigenous Chicano killings uh, at the hand of law enforcement, you know, doesn't get the attention or publicity that uh, maybe the African-Americans or other, other groups get, uh, but very involved throughout his life about writing about police brutality and, and state violence against the indigenous Mexican people, writing about Mexican-American studies when they banned the, the program, uh, very successful program. And, you know, that's where you had your Libro Traficante movement there in, in Arizona and Tucson in the high school. Uh, probably the most successful, you know, Mexican-American studies program that existed in our history at the high school level. Uh, the students were excelling, and yet the state government there bans the program and started banning books and, and other information that were a part of these classes he was writing about all kinds of issues throughout his career with, like I said, very, very 
different publications. Um, uh, uh, there were 36 publications that we included here um, uh, from the LA Times to uh, the Washington Post uh, to more recently when he continued writing up until the day he died, um, he was writing a, a monthly uh, column for uh, what was it, the populist? And he had these uh, online uh, academic and, and popular uh, intellectual forums, really, and he was always doing that. Um, uh, so his legacy are obviously all of the, the writings he's left behind, eight books, um, the, starting with his very first one, which was Assault with a Deadly Weapon in 1984 that chronicled his beatings and the aftermath, Justice, a Question of Race, The Ex and La Raza, which was very important, uh, very uh, formative for our people. Uh, he was, wrote that article, Who Declared War on the Word Chicano, which was very important. He included then in The Ex and La Raza, the Codex Tamuanchan on Becoming mm -hmm. Human, Amokshli, the ex-Kodis, uh, our sacred maiz is our mother, indigeneity and belonging to the Americas, Yolki, a warrior summoned from the spirit world, testimonials on violence, and then fighting, finally, this last one, um, the last book he, he wrote, Writing 50 Years, Mas o Menos Amongst the Gringos. So all of these tremendous writings, the books, but he produced, uh, you know, films. Um, he was constantly touring giving talks besides teaching. He was a, a Mexican-American and Raza studies professor at the University of Arizona. He received his PhD and with his, his book on the sacred maces, Our Mother. Uh, he ended up, you know, sort of moving beyond this sort of Chicanismo identity without ever losing it, but moving to what he liked to say that he was uh, referred to himself as a gente de maíz, right? Hmm. Um, not only do are we made of maíz, uh, we are maíz, you know, we eat maíz, um, we are made of maíz. Uh, and moving into this, I think, cosmic understanding of how we're all related hmm. as human beings, becoming human, but related to the whole cosmos, so he had this, uh, this cosmic understanding and he dealt a lot with healing because he experienced the violence. And I think that that is very much a part of his, his legacy is that, that he talked about the importance of healing <laughs> our people uh, from, from this trauma that we've experienced over generations, over 500 years. And he, he really, more than anybody else, connected the violence that he experienced and our people experience here on this continent, on both continents, to uh, the violence that was perpetrated upon mm -hmm. us as indigenous people over 500 years ago and how that's tied all the way to the beginning. So it's a big loss for our community, but he has left us a lot of his books and his writings and his teachings and his wisdom. A friend of mine, Jesse Mancia said, you know, people like Saintly will never die. You know, mm. he has written 
into our history books. He's written our history books too. Mm. Uh, and I firmly agree with him and he's left a, a tremendous legacy for all future generations. Thank you for those words. Also, I should mention, you mentioned uh, talking about feminism. Lupe came through for us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, very Thank you everybody. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for having me here. We, we are all, uh, talking about the uh, legacy of Dr. Seatley and his uh, impact on us and our community. Um, would you like to offer some reflections? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. It's such an honor to be able to be here with you all to, to talk about our great friend and elder and uh, teacher. It's just this beautiful human being. Um, I, I think today is probably the first day that I would be able to actually speak mm. like this. It has been such a, like, like uh, Juan was saying, a, a tremendous loss. Um, you know, my heart has been heavy. The world has been a different place since I got the news um, about him. So... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of share a little bit about what he what he means to me and to a lot of the people I know. Um, I'm a you know I'm a Chicana. I'm a um, Chicana Chicano studies teacher, and I'm also an ethnic studies teacher. I'm an organizer in the community, um, and I I come from a, a family who has spent my whole life um, part of the reindigenization, right? Like, you know our um, colonization over the past 500 years has de-indigenized, de-tribalized a lot of us. And because of that relationship that I have in my family with that, um, you know, my my um, my family is, they're ceremonial people, they're ceremony people. Um, they're also, you know, teachers. My father was a sun dancer my, um, and, you know, and, and other ways that he participated in ceremonia. Um, and so, when I first became a teacher, 20, um, I just started my 24th school year. So when I, my very first classroom, my father handed me the X and La Raza 2. Wow. Right. And my father, you know, he was like, you must use this book. Um, I was a social studies teacher at the time, but I would infuse, you know, to be culturally responsive to my students. I would infuse what my students were lacking that was um, to help them understand who they were, where they come from. So I helped them I, as in the way that simply would say, you know, follow the maize back then using a lot of his work. And um, at that time I started to follow the X column that he and Patricia um, were prolific in, in um, teaching the community with. Right. And so, um, and so simply he was my, um, he was one of those who really helped shape me as an educator when I first came into the classroom, um, I had this like very, um, you know, colonial idea of the teacher is is um, supposed to be this certain thing. Um, and this is how we conduct, you know, teaching with students, even though I was going into the classroom very much as a social justice educator, as a Chicana, as someone who had been a part of the movement with my father. I, I was coming to the classroom with that. But my pedagogy was still very colonial. And it was, it was through 
um, you know, simply and through others, you know, um, but definitely this, this beautiful, wonderful human being that I learned the importance of, of being real and authentic with who I am um, in order for my students to authentically be reconnected to who they were. And he was, he helped me to understand that. And I will be forever, forever grateful, right? Another thing that he helped me pedagogically to understand was that it's not just like me as this, you know, quote unquote, educated, knowledgeable, knowledgeable person in the classroom, right? It's, it's about our community, mm-hmm. right? It's about being out there with the community. And I think that's something that we have lost, um, in our, you know, I can speak for like Chicana, Chicano studies. Not, I don't mean lost like completely, but I, I think that it isn't as strong as it should be, that we should be uh, in, uh, having our parents come in as educators as well, right? Because they are <laughs> educators as well. And just making it a little bit more of something strong that we reconnect um, and, and bringing in our elders as experts, Right. Like how we would bring in simply he would always be, um, you know, he gladly would come into our classrooms, mm-hmm. he would come to our like our grassroots organizations and speak. And so he really taught me that importance. And I, I really want to um, say that the way we can keep him alive, aside from the beautiful, immortal writings that he's kept for us, his thoughts and all those countless books and, and, and films that he's produced is that, is that learning is that we, we need to make sure that, um, that we help our students follow the maize, right. And then um, help them also to understand that the importance of keeping that alive for the next generations, right. Because we have a lot of trauma, right. And that trauma, we're reproducing it, that horizontal violence, we're reproducing it in our communities. And he has shown us, that when we reconnect with it, we heal, mm-hmm. right? And then when we facilitate that for the next generations in whatever way, because all of us have our own special gifts, right? Mm-hmm. My superpower is I'm a teacher, right? Sintli was a pro- professor and also a beautiful writer, right? Um, you know, we have our muralists, we have our musicians, we have all of our people. We have our journalists, right? We have our mm-hmm. broadcast people, Um all of us in our special way, we need to keep that going, that reconnection. And not just like, I'm here to reconnect you, but the pedagogical element, right? Like like showing them how that has helped us and then and giving those like those keys to the next generations for them to be able to do so as well. Um, and whatever it is that their, gift, their gifts are. Um, I have to say that um, I feel extremely blessed who have learned that from Sintli, not just through his writings, but through my friendship with him. Um, yeah, I, um, it, it's, it, this is a tremendous loss, but I, I absolutely believe that um, he will live forever, mm-hmm. he will live beyond us. You know, we are, we are, um, we're blessed that, um, that we got to personally know him. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, 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 I really love how he, you know, he began in his, in the Pueblo Aguascalientes. He came here to the barrio, right? And then he, he reconnected with the Pueblo and, and with the, like the Asla Nahuac um, cultural embassy that he was helping create. He was helping, it was beautiful because he wasn't just bringing us there to reconnect, but he was also facilitating our, our, our people over there, our relatives over there, reconnecting with us, 
Mm. Right, because not only do we kind of lose a little bit of our our connection when we come here into the system, but they lost us too, right? And mm. so the intercambio, you know, coming together, that's another beautiful pedagogical model, right? It's not just about us going and taking; it's also about us giving, because we have an experience as as um, Chicano people here in the U.S. We have an experience where our antepasados have experienced colonialism and then we have this extra layer of what we've experienced as as a people here that we're still experiencing as a people here and and um it, it was very beautiful like we were there in the um like my one of the associations association of rasa educators um i'm the chair of the los angeles chapter so we went there for the um when they did the like the, the big opening mm -hmm. last year and that was one of the big, like, learnings that we got was we're going to also share our experiences. And it was beautiful to see and hear and learn about our relatives over there who have the same sort of um, reconnections, re-indigenizing, re-tribalizing, um, re like, um, not just knowing that we're from here, but also like, like being bold enough to declare it, mm. right? To declare it. We are not like foreigners, mm. right? Um, and, and being very like bold to learn about it, to, to be it, and to share that love and pride with our next generations, right? Whether it's our, our community, whether it's our familias, or whether like in our case, our students, or in some of your cases with all your readers, all the people who read or listen to your broadcasts, mm -hmm. that's that's powerful. Mm -hmm. And that's another way I think we need to keep Simply alive is through that. We need to keep him alive, his actual direct teachings, but also those pedagogical elements of reconnecting. Thank you so much for for adding that perspective. It's one. It's amazing how each of us had like such different uh, and profound experiences with their simply. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Lupe Carrasco Cardona for sharing that with us. And I do want to also give a shout out to the Institute of Chicana Chicano Psychology and Community Wellness in Austin. They were also there at the launch of the of uh, Dr. Sitley's book at the uh, Latino Bookstore. Uh, Matt, we mentioned we're going to give you the last two minutes. Matt, um, anything you'd like to add about the legacy to, to round this out? Well, I would just like to reiterate uh, what I had said earlier, that, you know, the, the, the real brilliance um, of St. Lee as not as a writer, but also as a human being was his was his relationship with time and that, that you know, time would go forward and backwards. And, you know, we'd be in one place and then we'd be in another. And it was all seamless. It was a very seamless tra tra transition. So there's so many writers today who, who move between being an artist and being like an academic and then being like a thinker and then being like a poet and then being also this. And so much of Saintly is felt in that. I mean, like, you know, a lot of like what Tim Hernandez does these days. I mean, a lot, a lot of this kind of movement that just kind of goes from this to that, the other. Um, 
uh, I really it's really difficult to imagine uh, without without the huge legacy of uh, Roberto Cindy Rodriguez, who was who was so many things to so many people, um, and so so very very skilled in so many different crafts. Um, but he presented it not as like these individual talents, but as like this kind of seamless um, thing, just a, just a, just a human expression. And so um, he's one of our one of our great writers uh, and when one of our one of our greats. So um, I'm moved to have known him and uh, and uh, you know whatever legacy he had. I mean, the thing about Seenly is that his work was about the people, mm-hmm. um, but also the way he worked was with the people. So, so much he did what he did in collective. And so, so much he did in a very spiritual way is gonna live on forever. But also so much of what he did in a very practical way, the work will continue. The work will continue with the embassy. The work will continue with uh, with um, with the, the, the police brutality reports. The work will continue with this larger project of returning people to, to their ancestral roots. That work will continue. And I know this, I know this not just in a, general beautiful way but in a very very practical everyday way and and that was really what Seenly was was someone who, who who bridged this vision of who we truly are with every day you know get your hands dirty get to work kind of thing and the work will continue so that's what i'd say no thank you and we uh on behalf of our team from texas we're gonna renew our commitment to our brothers and sisters in Calipas throughout the southwest to keep uh, like you said, Lupe, that's part of the pedagogy. Um, break these barriers. Please stand in casa. Um, keep us posted. We want to help con nuestro granito de arena. Uh, also with the Latino bookstore in San Antonio. And let's all remember, the legacy is on at this moment. It continues. The work continues. Uh, I do want to thank Rodrigo Bravo for producing our radio shows. And I also want to thank Roxana Guzman for helping produce our multi-platform broadcasts. I want to thank Leanna Lopez, our coordinator, our graphic designer, Mark Anthony Pignon, uh, Brian Paras, who helped us with environmental justice, Lupe Mendez, who helped us with our community engagement, Laura Torres, who helped us a lot with the pedagogy and reaching out to different institutions. I join all of you. I'm, I'm able to talk about this a little differently this week. Uh, when I convene with all of you without fuerza y animo, and I remember all the work that they did. So I want to thank everybody for their support for the this radio show and our granito de arena for this entire movement and to all of you for all that you do for, for all of us to keep us moving forward. And again, the show is in honor of Dr. Saintly, who changed the world with his work and continues to live through the power of words and cultura. Thank you. Stay tuned for, for more of his words. This is Tony Diaz, Libertad Ficante. Uh, gracias. You are tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. This is Tony Diaz, El Libro Traficante. We're really happy to welcome as we talk about the national launch of his latest book, which covers five decades of intellectual work and activism and as we celebrate the launch of the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center's Latino Bookstore, ending that book desert that engulfs our community, please welcome Dr. Roberto Sintli Rodriguez. Roberto, how are you? Un grande abrazo. Yeah, well, I'm doing pretty good. You know, nowadays I live in Mexico, but I was called to a conference or invited to a conference in 
the state of Utah. And so I'm here now in the U.S. That's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about that conference. The conference, well, basically, it's about my book, the, Our Sacred Maïs is Our Mother. They were going to be doing this exhibit. Um, one of the art galleries here, one of the conferences and, and the university, they uh, wanted to do something on Maïs, and so they went through books and books, and they said that uh, out of all the books, they read mine and said, hey, let's invite the author here, because it matched everything that they wanted to do. You know, I, I have a long history with Utah regarding my research because when Patricia, my ex-wife and I, years ago, you know, we, we did research on origins and migrations and it brought us uh, all about over 200 maps showed that Salt Lake was the point of origin. And we, we never made that official conclusion because that's not how you really do research. But if somebody else wanted to do that conclusion, they could. That is, there was over 200 maps from the 1500s through the 1800s. You know, first Utah, and then the later, the late, well, the oldest map shows Salt Lake. And uh, anyway, so a lot of people here, of course, know about that research. Some of them do make that conclusion. But I mean, I, you know, it would not be, at least not in this way. I think I'll, I'll go back to that research. Uh, and say, okay, I, I, I'm very confident this is it. But right now I couldn't do that. Uh, but partly too with my research, what I did is uh, an elder, you know, because we did 12 years of research. And when a, an elder one time, because we used to visit elders everywhere, and I told his elder, or this elder told me that uh, he says, hey, are you looking for where the Aztecs came from or where you came from? And nobody had ever asked me that because I, I was looking at a map that said Antigua Residencia de los Aztecas. And the older map said, Desde aquí salieron los indios mexicanos para fundar su imperio. That the ancient Mexican Indians left the Salt Lake region to found their empire. So when he asked me that, I said, you know, nobody's ever asked me. I never, I was never looking for Aslan. I was trying to figure out what the map was about, what all the maps were about. But now that you asked, I said, I bet you the real reason is yes, I'm trying to figure out where I came from. And he said, that's what I thought. And he says, if you want to know who you are, you're not going to find that on a map. So forget the maps. If you want to know who you are, follow the <laughs> corn, follow the maize. And that's what I did. So, I, you know, we went back to school. I got a master's PhD and then my book, you know. So it was a long process. And it was awesome, exciting, exhilarating, you know, doing all this travel research, archives, going to archaeological sites, meeting with elders. It was awesome. Um, anyway, so... That's awesome. I, yeah. And they, So here, you know, they picked up that book and said, no, we got to bring it. Because for me, the story of Maïs was like a lot bigger than the story of Aslan. Because Aslan would actually go to the people known as Mexica or seven tribes and the Aztecs and all that. The story of Maïs is literally the entire continent, you know? So in that sense, it touches the people of Guatemala, it touches the Hopi, it touches the people from Peru, you know, the Andes, and on and on, the whole continent, and including the islands. So, yeah, so for me, uh, that's, that's pretty much the story and why they brought me here. I'm going to resist diving into that because that is exciting. You're, you're basically <laughs> breaking down how 
the charts are documented history by those mm-hmm. who run things, governments, etc. The corn, <laughs> it respects no borders. <laughs> and and it, it's there where the gente are eating and living. But let's not go there because that's only mm-hmm. one decade of the five decades <laughs> yeah. you write about. And I want to take editorial privilege here because everyone's going to get to experience the, the awesome book giving highlights mm-hmm. of your half a century of research and activism. However, I do want to remind folks of our relationship with Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, your work, the gente de Tucson, because this new Latino bookstore, just like your original research, isn't about the status quo. This bookstore yeah. is not created around corporate consumer right, tactics. Right. This is community cultural capital. So I want to give a shout out because I remember... You showed some of those maps when yeah. Nuestra Palabra was still convening at Chapultepec Party Hall here in Houston, Texas. That yeah. had to be maybe two decades ago because Nuestra Palabra is going on 24 years old. So, it might have been three decades ago because that was <laughs> way back. It might have been in the 90s. That's exciting. That's yeah. exciting because that's how long you've been in the game. We've been touching people. And the other thing I'd like to bring up is that as we celebrate your new book, in a in a focus that is community, in a space that's community, I want to remind folks that your works were among those that were part of the brilliant Mexican-American Studies curriculum that was banned by yes, right-wing yes. Arizona officials. And again, people sometimes wonder why Nuestra Palabra became Libro Traficantes. They were, mm-hmm. officials were attacking our familia, because we've known you for a long time. And yeah. We knew what you were about. The the insults that were buried into the law, um, threatening to overthrow the government, not true. Creating courses that offend, that offend certain people, not true. That was not the case with your work. Tell us a little bit about your origins and your work in Tucson, Arizona, because you were part yeah, of that yeah. brilliant curriculum. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wrote two books um, I actually had written about five or so plus a video, but and all of that was banned. But two of the books, The Ex in La Raza and Codex Tamanchan, on Becoming Human, both of those were banned the year before the big ban. Um, <laughs> Sean, Sean, the director, uh, you know, he, you know, he used to love my work. Well, he still does, but I'm saying he used to love the work, and he used to tell me, you know what, we ran out of books and we need more. We need a whole set for the whole department and. So I think he ended up ordering like 300 and 300. And in the middle of that process, that's when they banned it. And they said that, no, this book cannot be in our classrooms. And so all of a sudden, 300 books were stuck at the warehouse. Um, and uh, I think there's even still a few left, like around 50, maybe, maybe. Uh, anyway, so the point being is that um, they were already having these rumblings about that uh, they, they found material objectionable. One of the books actually had the story of the maps and all that, because I think that was at the beginning of that process. Uh, anyway, so those two books were banned. And then later, when all the other books were banned the year after, that included like um, my other books. I think Just as a Question of Race was one of them. Um, I don't, again, I don't remember all of them right now. But, oh, well, uh, me and uh, Patricia had a book called uh, Gonzalez Rodriguez. Uh, un, uncensored and something or other. Well, you could tell it was censored. But, <laughs> and, 
anyway, so that, then we had a video, a Moshli San Setofon, and that one was about the, uh, what's it called? Well, actually the same topic of origins and migration, but we hadn't made the bigger connection just yet uh, regarding uh, Maiz. And actually, you know, Patrizia uh, uh, had a different emphasis. You know, we both had our own emphasis. We did joint research, but she, her emphasis was medicine, or, uh, traditional medicine, you know, American Indian, Mexican traditional medicine. And mine ended up being Maiz. So anyway, so that's what we were doing at that time. She produced wow. her own book, uh, and that one was banned too, uh, The Mud People. And that was uh, so justice book on struggles in Mexico and all that. Anyway, so that that was pretty much my relation. That, that that I had a great relationship with the with the teachers, with the directors. They would use our books. In fact, they would use our column because we would write a national, you know, a weekly syndicated column, and the teachers would use our column, you know, in the classroom. So when the, all that happened, of course, we were pretty much implicated. We we were professors at the University of Arizona. So that's, uh, uh, you know, that wasn't the, the district. You know, we weren't part of the district. However, every student from their very super successful program would come to us, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, of course, were teaching their former students. And so that's how, you know, we were involved. At, you probably know this. I got arrested with 15 people. I think 13 of them were students. And, um, yeah, so um, that was... I mean, you know, to me, the students were willing to risk their careers. You know, they were little kids, you know, they're middle mm-hmm. school, high school, college. And I said, well, if they're willing to do that, so am I. And, uh, and I was actually more concerned for, for their safety, you know, because I mm-hmm. said, well, I mean, I, if, if they're going to do something to them, because it was like a sit-in, you know. I said, if they're going to sit in, in fact, I'll just be brief about this, but there was about 40 students, middle students, that were going to get arrested, but the lawyers chased them out and says, no, they're going to take you from your parents. They're not going to arrest you. They're going to take you from your mm. parents. Uh, so the kids left, and then four of them came back up, and the lawyers again told them, I said, no, you can't be here. And I said, we don't care. I said, we're going to defend our own program. You know, and wow, <laughs> those students were, and those, these were middle school students. So you could imagine middle school, high school, and then, of course, college. The college students were the, they were more like advisors <laughs> you know <laughs> so the struggle was really led by middle and high school students I want to just raise a few points yeah. that we can't delve into because I want people to appreciate how important it is that we're celebrating the national launch of your new book. So your voice was not mm-hmm. silenced, even though we've had governmental attempts to do that. And and also, I want to point out other ways that are not as directly, um, um, they're not direct attacks, but still as sinister that are ways yeah. to keep our community away from their books so that people can appreciate when you come launch October 1st, the, La- yeah. the Guadalupe's Latino bookstore, why it's so important. So you've touched on, you, you cross many borders. You're talking Mexico, yeah. Utah, Tucson. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, in the amount of time you've conducted that research, people can get several PhDs. I point that out too because even our educational systems yeah. are not even profoundly built to... to pro- profoundly understand our people here's the 
another thing I want to point out. You just mentioned that Arizona right-wing officials banned our history and culture. And we've talked about that. We know about that. And, and we could talk several shows about that. We're not going to because here's the last point I want to bring up. San Antonio is our community in San Antonio is suffering from a book desert. It's engulfed in a book desert. Corporate policies sentence us to book deserts. There seems to be an active movement to make sure that our community is kept from its history, culture, and literature. Is that the case in oh, your no. opinion? Yes. No, absolutely. You know, it, it's kind of sad because you would think education is what we want. You know, we want kids to know and to be um, to have as much knowledge as possible. And, you know, it's like we were living in Africa. Say we were living in India or Asia, you know, China, for example. You know, I think we would expect to know the history of like that continent, you know, even a country, right? You would, you would expect that would be um, basic, you know, like, hey, this continent has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, why don't we know a little bit about that? You know, I, even my students in college at the university, I ask them, for example, uh, name me five cities from this continent prior to Columbus. I'm lucky to get one, sometimes two. You know, they'll say, oh, they don't speak plan, you know? And I said, what about anywhere else? And some of them might say Akuma. Some of them might say um, Oribe, you know? And, then, and that's about it at the most, you know? And I'm thinking, you know, this city, this continent had over 50,000 cities. And we don't even know the names, much less their actual stories. Now, of course, the biggest story, bigger story is Maiz. But the point being is that exactly what you said is exactly what happens. They don't want us to know. It's like nothing was here except savages in an empty continent. Mm. And, and, and so that's what they want us to teach. You know, one thing that I think got by a lot of people is that they were okay if the history of, of Raza was taught 1492 to the present. What they objected to is prior to 1492. They were like, that's not your history. That's native history. That's indigenous history. Even our three-year-olds were like, you know, they knew, you know, we know we're from here. We're, we got thousands and thousands of years of history. And yet, instead of, uh, what did they say? Instead, instead of uh, our students, I was going to say our site, I guess it was our site. I mean, we didn't accept that. You know, we didn't accept the idea of Columbus starting you know, or like a war or an invasion being the beginning of our history. Like, no, we perceived that by thousands of years, and that's what they objected to. Because, you know, that, of course, implies indigenous beliefs, thoughts, philosophy, etc. And um, they objected to that. They wanted us, again, they wanted us to be the founding fathers and maybe pilgrims, you know, but anything else they didn't want. That brings us to your new book, 50 years, más o menos, of writing amongst the gringos. It's about 49.5 years. (laughs) You've kind of given us some of the insights and sensibility you bring to the table. How how did you pick what to focus on? Well, you're going to laugh right now because sitting next to me is the person who actually chose the, the material. Now, I'll, I'll be brief, and then I, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll put her on. Excellent. And can explain. Okay, so what happens is that, you know, I've probably written several thousand pieces, you know, of columns, articles, I mean, everything, all kinds of writing, interviews, reporting, all that. And uh, 
you know, because I'm a professor at the time. You know, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a emeritus professor now. That that is, I retired so I could write more. Anyway, so at the time, you know, I'm doing professor things like teaching and writing more. And I had a, a, about two other books that I was working on. So I asked a friend and colleague if, if maybe if she had time, if she could uh, choose the material for the book. She had already translated my Maiz book, you know, and then she was working on my other book, the Yolki book. And I asked her if uh, maybe she would consider it. And I said, look, whatever you choose is fine with me. I, I don't have any, you know, I'm not going to tell you yes or no. I said, if anything, it'll be between you and the publisher. Uh, you know, you two can work that out. But I mean, I, I don't want to tell you that yes or no. Anyway, so again, her name's Tanya Pacheco, and she's next to me, and maybe she can say a couple of words. That'd be and, great. <laughs> shorter words, she'll send it back to me. But uh, hold on one second. Right? Perfect. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. And Thank you so much. I can't imagine how hard it was to decide what to include from a trajectory that's over five decades. So how, how did you approach this this challenge? Oh my God, yes. It was a beautiful experience, a lot of beautiful knowledge and wisdom. And personally, I just dove right deep in to all his writings, um, fiction, nonfiction, educational, not educational. And then I personally picked more like bibliography so it's like more his story and celebration of his whole life, mm. the writing. And personally, me and the publisher was like more educational, more like the knowledge that we need now. So it's a beautiful mix of both. But to me, personally, it's a celebration of his life and bibliography and all his writing. It's really beautiful. I'm now, very honored. We've, we've talked to uh, Roberto extensively over the history of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. And some folks who are listening, they're going to go to the books just because Arizona officials banned some of it. So they want to defy Arizona. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of Tejanos are familiar with our hermano. Uh, but someone just listening and, and debating like, hmm, why, why should I dive into that book? What do you think is so special about Roberto's work? I believe his experience, because he has a lot of, like, experience. He's not just, like, um, just writer. Um, his personal experience from L.A., his personal experience from Yolki, and his personal experience from, like, the whole Chicano Aztlan movement, I think that's very, um, very, power very empowering. Um, so I think that was very special to be in this book and all the knowledge. And you're right. He has a lot of, um, a lot of writings that were banned in Arizona. <laughs> so personally me, I was like, you need to put all of that in there <laughs> <laughs> because this book was actually one of the first writings that he was able to pick and make it more his own. Mm. Cause I know like under the U of A professor, like he has guidelines and stuff. So this is really special for me in a personal kind of um, connection. So it's more like a celebration of all that. The hard work, the good work. That's awesome. The band work, the knowledgeable <laughs> work. And personally, me, I enjoy more like his, um, his personal stories. Like with his family, like growing up. He has a really funny story with the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and little, just little stories like that that make it very very impactful 
Well, before we have you hand the mic back to uh, Dr. Sinkley, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, your trajectory. And now that you've got a PhD in Dr. Sinkley studies, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> yes. So what I am, I'm more of like a healer. I've done hands-on massaging, um, spirituality, cleansing. And then now with his wisdom and knowledge, I feel like I've mixed it a little bit. So I do more more native yoga, more native meditation. I include all of the, the struggles, basically. So I plan on taking all his knowledge and wisdom and putting in my own magic with a more healing approach to the aspect. Love it. And that's, that's completely a full picture of the experience. And that's all about community culture capital. Well, thank you so much for your dedication to La Causa, to literature, yeah, thank you so and much all you for do. By all means. Thank you. Thanks. In closing, Roberto, of course, we're familiar with your more recent work where you've been quantifying violence on our community, which is not just the the headline of the day. It goes back decades. Um, Tell us a little about that work, because that's probably going to get you banned right now. Of course, there are (laughs) different laws right now where there, there are forces at work, again, trying to control what our people learn. They are controlling the classrooms and curriculums. They cannot control everything outside of that. So we're happy to right. get that information to people. But tell us about this era. Well, that that's the key, that, that independence, you know, independent bookstores, independent publishers, and on and on. Because, you know, when all, you know, you more than anybody knows this, the whole libra, libro traficante idea is that if they ban the books, I go, we still got to get that knowledge out there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when all that stuff started happening, you know, everything being banned, I said, you know what? We have so many conflicts that it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep writing mm. curriculum. You know, I'm going to write. Oh, and I didn't mention that. This book has uh, about four or five educators that took decade by decade and created curriculum from it. So that's the added bonus to it. And, you know, some of the writers, Angela Valenzuela uh, is one of them. Nice. Did something. Uh, uh, Liliana Saldana did something. Nice. And then we had one other person. Um, well, again, there's a total of about five. Irene Vasquez out of the University of New Mexico. You know, that one's a great story. My colleague and mentor, um, Juan Gomez Quinones, uh, who um, well, Juan published, you know, the other one, <laughs> that is uh, Tejeda, he published his work, you know, Indigenous Quotient. And um, so I asked, he asked me, who of all, everyone that you know, would you want to do your intro? And I said, oh, that's easy. That'd have to be Juan Gomez Quinones, you know. He's my mentor from, mm. all the way from when I first started college. But as you know, he died from COVID. He died um, about about seven months ago, I think. And him and his wife collaborate, you know. So I asked his wife, I said, look, I, you know, it's kind of difficult, but I still would want to have his presence in there through you, you know? Mm-hmm. I said, could you do that? And she said, of course, you know? And she she did that. So the intro, you know, the preface is from her. And um, anyway, so the, the whole point of all of this is that, you know, we couldn't uh, permit, you know, for people to, um, to uh, ban our work. And mm-hmm. so, the, again, the idea is that no matter what is going on out there, we still produce the curriculum. 
if they don't accept the curriculum, you know, one year, well, it's still going to be there like Lark. five years from now, or it might be, you know, um, 10 years from now. We don't know. The, you know, because you, you mentioned the, the issue of violence. You have to remember that, for me at least, the violence begins on this continent in 1492. Mm. You know, I remember, so I, I almost got killed in 79, right? So I started looking at in both directions. Well, later the, the other direction, but I said, okay, when did all this stuff start? Because, you know, I had two trials. They lasted seven and a half years. And I had a lot of time to think in those days, you know? So I started researching and went back to, I, mean, I lived through the 60s, 70s, that violence in, in East LA, the killing of Ruben Salazar. But then the, there was a case out of in the fifties, uh, the, the bloody, bloody Christmas. If you remember the movie *L.A. Confidential*, the opening sequence is when they're beating, the, you know, they're beating the crap out of Mexicanos in jail. Mm. That that's that. So I, I said I kept going back to the forties, zoot suit riots, you know, thirties deportations, lynchings, and back and back and back. And I'm like, damn, there isn't a decade where Mexicanos where native peoples, where black peoples are not being killed. In other words, they were being killed everywhere and always, you know? And it was even worse before hmm. because the, the lynchings were for the purpose of taking the land away, you know? And anyway, so for me, now going in the other direction, you know, this this is like 40 years later. I mean, after Rodney, uh, not Rodney well, Rodney came too, but Michael Brown, when Michael Brown was killed, all of a sudden, the entire nation started focusing on the topic again. And I started noticing that it was like most everything, it was pretty much black and white. Everything was black and white. And we decided that, uh, or not, well, yeah, yeah, it was we, because a lot of us started to do this to document, you know, all the killings. And then we actually began a project about a year ago. And we're almost ready to release the final um, study. Uh, and it, and well, I think the emphasis for us, we don't want people to think that it's simply about people being killed by police as opposed to you know, this violence and brutality, mm. an overarching uh, brutality that literally suppresses communities, controls communities. And those are the three principal ones, the, the, the Mexican, the, the native and the black communities, you know, pretty much have that same history, that same modern history.